your weekly Selk Grassroots podcast, brought to you by the Down to Play app. If we bring it back round, yeah, you know, why are we treating those people differently in sport if they behave in that way? If you did it in the street and you walked up to someone and punched them, you know, the, the likelihood is you're 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 going to get prosecuted. So I, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the same. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 12 of The Final Whistle with Ant, Martin and Nathan, and today's special guest is Dr. Tom Webb. Very recently, his book, uh, Referees, Match Officials and Abuse has just come out. Uh, welcome to the show, Tom, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, on the subject of abuse, let's just get straight into it. Um, y- your book is out, and uh, what's the purpose of the book? Who's the kind of target audience for it? Yeah, well, firstly, thanks thanks for having me on. Um, secondly, yeah, in terms of the book, uh, it's aimed at match officials generally, but also policymakers, uh, people at governing bodies, uh, referee match official associations, anyone really that can have an input and an impact in terms of the experiences of match officials. So it's based on um, over 8,000 responses to online surveys across different sports and countries. Um, So it's a very big data set, rich data set, um, which we've gathered over a, a, a number of years. And we've built the sort of research and the findings from that, that data set. Um, and then also obviously gone out and, and looked at what's happening in other countries and other sports and things to try and understand some of the good practice as well um, that exists in terms of supporting match officials and developing those match officials. Um, and also trying to look at the policy that, that exists around um, abuse, retention, recruitment, that sort of stuff in different countries and some of the challenges, because it's not only a, an English issue, this exists in different sports and in different countries as well. And we we look in one of the chapters at um, some of the issues wider afield. So, you know, America, we look at New Zealand, Australia, Canada, we look at South America and some of the media stories of of abuse and, and some of the challenges that exist in those countries as well. So um, we've really tried to make it, Firstly, focus on England and, and what's happening here, and then and then broaden that out to look at globally what's going on and what we can learn. So, what what was kind of the the impetus of of, of the study? Like, was there a, a key event or a moment that, that kind of triggered um, you to to go out there and say, right, we need to look deeper into the data. We need to look at maybe some some personal experiences from referees. Uh, what what was the starting point? I guess it's it's been coming for, for quite a while. So if I sort of backtrack a little bit, in terms of my research career, I first started looking at uh, the support, retention, recruitment, and associated the abuse to that. Uh, back from my master's dissertation, which was back in 2004. Um, and that was with, alongside the FA. So the FA, um, I was at the University of Gloucestershire at the time, uh, they had a relationship with the um, people that were involved at the FA in, in refereeing at that time. And they said, look, we've got this study. Uh, would you be interested in facilitating? Um, my course leader at the time came to me and said, 
we've got this meeting with the FA, um, you know, it could be a potential dissertation and some stuff from that. I didn't actually know it was in refereeing at that point. So I went to the meeting and then they, they sort of talked about it and I'd never really at that stage considered doing research into refereeing or match officials. Uh, but I sort of thought as a master's student, well, I'd be pretty stupid seeing as this opportunity is presenting itself to not do it and given the support that exists with the governing body not to do it. So that that study took place. Um, that was an online survey, which back in 2004 was much more difficult to do than it is today. Um, and that that was a sort of precursor and they used some of the findings from that to feed into the RESPECT programme. I then went, got my master's, went and worked in the sector in sports management um, and then came back into academia and then started doing research again um, and kept those contacts and everything. But as I started looking at the subject again, I looked at elite referees, first of all, and that was the focus of my PhD. And, and, and as part of that research, the referees were talking about the abuse they suffer and crowd interference and crowd noise and how it impacts upon them and, and that sort of stuff. Um and so I started thinking, well, actually, I wonder what impact the respect programs had. Um, you know, what, where are we now? It was introduced in 2008. What impact has it had? Um, you know, what, what problems does it solve? What, what still exists and that sort of stuff. And then went back into looking at that. And then there were a number of publications that, that came along the way. Um, and so the book was a sort of natural progression, really, of then bringing a lot of information together to look at as a whole, across sports, across countries, to really start to consider how much of an issue it was, abuse and the associated consequences, how support and the support networks are important for match officials, mentoring, that sort of stuff, how mental resilience is, is important when you're officiating and being strong and um, that sort of stuff. And then also those mental health implications, well-being implications and, and, you know, understanding that. So it's been a sort of long time coming, I guess, and it's sort of almost a culmination of all those different areas that I've talked about and it sort of ended up with the book as it as it is now. Incredible, incredible. Well, if you looked at it now, Tom, well, I don't know if anyone's doing it, because we have no crowds and obviously we, 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 we've mentioned it past blogs and on some of our social media posts, about the number of yellow cards for the home team has gone up and the number of yellow cards for the away team has gone down. It's really weird scores. You've only got to look at Liverpool mm. with the Villa. You're having these really bizarre situations within football. In regards, do you think that's because, is it is it a more truer game because there's no fans there? You're getting like a real effect of, you know, teams against teams rather than teams influenced by fans. I think there's definitely, I mean, there's certainly an impact. We've only got to look at the scores and the, you know, what's happening at the moment. I think it's affecting players and it's, you know, and referees are going to be in influenced in some way as well. Um, certainly home advantage has decreased. I mean, we can, we can see that just the descriptive statistics tell us that home advantage has decreased. You know, I know it's an anomaly, but you, you know, and, We've got two good teams. The example you use, you know, Manchester United and Tottenham, for example. Yes, Tottenham could go to Old Trafford and win. 
you know, in a normal season, you wouldn't expect them to win 6-1 at Old Trafford. You know, just, oh. that's, that's a bit of an anomaly. And there are other examples. You, you mentioned Aston Villa and Liverpool. I know Liverpool are away, but even then that's, you know, you, you're not going to expect that sort of result. But there's been a number of results and, and also in different leagues as well. Certainly in the Bundesliga, for example, which started earlier than the Premier League last season, there were examples of home advantage decreasing. Um, and I think statistically that that has been the case. Home advantage has decreased we did a paper on that in 2013. It's decreased since 1945 anyway. It's been on a sort of gradual decline. Um, and that was across the leagues in England and in Scotland. Um, and so, and, and one of the reasons we we put down to that is the increase in the, the quality of referees, the training they receive, the development pathways, that sort of stuff, particularly at the top level, um, that you would expect, given professional referees have come in, that it would it would decrease, you know, that they can deal with crowd noise, with pressure, with, with that home advantage a bit better. So, but, but COVID has, has definitely had a further impact on that, that home advantage. I think we could say that. I think it's uh, gone the other way to be quite honest, uh, because I was talking to a select group two championship referee a couple of weeks ago and he was t- telling me, <clears throat> sorry, that he was, um, he's finding it actually quite difficult to concentrate. He finds, he finds his mind's wandering a lot more so he's less prepared for raising his profile he's less prepared for a lot of the things that you know crowd noise in effect would you know it's not just the the oohs and the ahs when there's a chance it's about the oohs and the ahs when tackles are coming in and things like that and so I think that one of the key things he was saying was was um was about how hard he was finding it to actually concentrate on on the game and he would find his he would find his mind wandering. And I think the other thing which uh, you know obviously you noticed about the uh, you, you noted there amount about the changes in scores, norm advantage and things like that. One of the things I've noticed and, and will be interested to sort of explore further is seems to be an awful lot more added time, both in the first half and second half. I think some games have had more than 10 minutes added time if you take the first half and the second half. Um, together, the amount of added time in games has gone up massively, particularly this season. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, Manchester United scored a penalty at Brighton, didn't they, in the ninth or tenth minute of yeah. added time or something like that. I mean, that's... I Most of that, I would think, and I haven't researched this, but, I mean, VAR is going to have yeah. an impact there as well. You know, the time it takes to make decisions and and consult monitors at the side of the pitch and get feedback and things like that. I think that was a natural consequence. That was always going to happen. We were going to, we were going to have increased time, injury time and additional time because, you know, if if you have two or three incidents, that could quite easily be two, three minutes an incident. Mm. If it's not clear when it's being watched and watched back and things, that would easily account for sort of nine, 10 minutes, wouldn't it? And I think, I think VAR, you know, again, that that has had an impact as well. Mm, have, have you did on your study papers? Is there? Did you look at it in regards to the different levels of football? At pro level, they're going to have fourth officials. They're going to have police. They're going to have stewards and a neutral system referees. Going right down the levels, the next one down, you don't have fourth officials. You come right down to on on their own. Did, did was there any influence on the level of abuse from a referee on his own? To in a team of four or three, just a big differences. 
yeah, it differs from level to level, as you would expect, you know. So we created a model, actually, within the book, um, which looks at factors influencing referees effectively. And those can be internal or external in a wider environment and things like that. Um, and abuse is obviously one of those. But what happens is, you know, the, the abuse at the top level, so if we look at, like, the Premier League, say crowds are back and, and there's abuse from crowds, players, whatever that might be. Yes, that abuse can have an effect on that that referee, but the, the likelihood of that escalating to a physical confrontation is minimal because you it's on camera, um, you've got stewards, you've got fourth officials, you've got, you know, there's loads and loads of reasons why that's the likelihood of that escalating is is much smaller. You take that down to a Sunday league level and you look at a referee on a pitch somewhere with 22 players, coaches, substitutes, spectators, and them. And they're on their own. And the chance of that escalating is far higher. So, you know, if it goes wrong, it's quite a, you know, it's, it's quite an isolating place to be, you know, potentially. You're on your own with all these other individuals and you. Um, so, yeah, it, it differs from level to level, absolutely. Um, the, the pressure is there at every level but it's the what we found is and this is in the model is that the pressure just differs at the different levels so at the top level the pressure is all about the consequences of the decisions you make the exposure of the decisions you make if you make an error everyone knows about it it's it's highlighted analyzed across different platforms and channels and programs um, across the media. And there's a there's pressure there. There's pressure on getting those decisions right because it can be the difference between, you know, teams being relegated or promoted or, you know, and that's worth millions and millions of pounds. So there's huge pressure there. And then you come down to lower leagues and you come down the levels and the pressure's not there in the consequences of your decisions necessarily at that exposure that you might have but there are consequences in terms of if those decisions aren't right or if they go badly or if your performance is bad then then there's a you know the abuse side of things is much more prevalent and it's much more likely that there might be some physical abuse or you might be subjected to um situations of intimidation that are you know very difficult to control and that pressure is very real as well so there's pressure at all these different levels it's just how that pressure manifests itself that differs mm. i know we, we when bobby Maley did a uh, presentation for us um we flew him over from from norway and he did this incredible presentation on the difference between abuse and banter yeah and he put up different tweets of of what you know has been aimed at him. One was like, "Oh, Bobby Maley shagging dogs," because there's this fictitious video of him shagging dogs. Proved that that wasn't the case. You know, he he made it quite clear what was happening. And then there was one of saying, "Bobby Maley, uh, I hope your kids die of cancer or whatever," which clearly is abuse. And then you have an in between one where. Oh, Bobby Maley looks like he's he's a, a bouncy castle or whatever. You have these different levels of things that people all know what abuse is and people know what banter is. But we seem to think, you know, the interesting question I want to put to you is, does anyone actually identify what abuse looks like? Yeah, so we, we when we did the surveys, we give um, 
examples. Um, but what I would say to that is there's a sort of caveat in that abuse is quite a personal thing. So what I would consider abuse, you might not consider abuse. And, and we're talking verbal abuse, really, because physical abuse is is much more straightforward. You know, it's like if, if there's physical harm or, or you're touched physically, you know you are. Verbal abuse is a bit more difficult. Now, some of that comes down to individual feeling. And if you feel that you've been abused, you probably have. Now, our tolerance levels are all different. And it's also true that it differs from sport to sport. What's acceptable in football is probably not acceptable for a cricket umpire. You know, we've, we've got to understand that there are differences between sports. Um, and we need to understand that when we're talking about abuse. And I, I always try and clarify that. Um, you know, verbal abuse is is quite a subjective thing. And like you said, you know, the examples you gave of Bobby, that's, you know, for him, I know, I know Bobby's a Yorkshireman. Yeah, he's quite, you know, water off a duck's back a lot of the time with some of that stuff. Um, and that's great that he can deal with it in that way. And he's absolutely right to highlight the differences. Mm. But if that's a different individual, they might feel very differently about that. And then that's when we're getting into the mental health, well-being side of things as well, because the impact is very difficult to quantify on that individual. And it, and it does differ. And like I said, it differs from sports to sport as well. And also, you know, culture to culture, what's acceptable in one country, for example, might not be acceptable in another. If you look at the laws of the game in terms of, in terms of football or player behaviour, an example could be something like diving. Now, diving is acceptable in Latin European culture. In Italy, in Spain, it's part of the game. If you can deceive the referee and you get away with it, well done. Yes, yeah, the referee's fault for not detecting it. If it happens in, in the Premier League, it's much less acceptable. We don't really, as a culture, accept that sort of behaviour. And you can you look back in history and look at players like Ronaldo when he came to Manchester United and things like that. And even, you know, someone like Jurgen Klinsmann when he went to Tottenham back in, what, 94. Um, the way he behaved in sort of, you know, Italy and places like that where he'd been before with Inter Milan and things, much more acceptable to, to simulate. You come to the Premier League, it's, it's much less acceptable. So... There are differences between cultures, the behaviour is different and what's acceptable in terms of abuse can also be different, but it is a very subjective thing. Abuse is very subjective. Yeah. It's a great uh, point that obviously you make um, to highlight the, um, the difference you made at the beginning of the point you made really to highlight the difference between what's acceptable for a, for a football referee and, and a cricket umpire. I think that, you know, there's a current um, FIFA referee in this country who's also a cricket umpire as well in his sort of spare time as a, at a grassroots level in, in terms of cricket. Um, and I think from hearing him speak about that, he actually finds it quite cathartic to officiate without that. And I think, you know, he'll get the odd comment of, you know, something about his, his football referee and career, which is obviously his full-time job. Well, obviously, it marries quite nicely because when the football season's off, he can he can umpire cricket, and it's not as well. It's not really physically demanding in anywhere near the same way. Um, and I just think that it's really really funny that a lot of people from the outside would would look at any officiating role and think that's got to be quite taxing mentally. There's got to be a lot of challenge to it. But the facts are that the culture that and the intensity of the culture around football means that officiating other sports can be cathartic, can be 
I, did, I don't want to say easy, but can can all can almost feel like a breeze in comparison to the scrutiny of 40, 50, 60,000. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very different, you know. And in the book, we look at different sports. We look at abuse across different sports. We look at football, rugby union, rugby league, cricket in this country. And the levels of abuse in terms of verbal abuse and physical abuse are different. Um, you know, football and rugby league, much higher cricket and rugby union uh, lower. But in terms of verbal abuse, they, you know, the respondents we had, uh, the referees from uh, and umpires from cricket and rugby union, still reporting over 50% of them uh, had had some form of verbal abuse. Now, that was far higher than we, we, we expected it would be, to be honest. We didn't think it would be anywhere near. Now, football was at 93%. Um, I think rugby league was mid-80s. Um, so, much higher... But even so, there's there's still a prevalence across those those other sports as well. Um, but they are different. You know, each sport is different. Each sport has different historical developments and, and how they were formed and played, which influence how we act and react even today. Um, and we have to understand that, you know. And what, what, what surprised me with the cricket uh, findings, and we also helped the MCC, they brought red cards into cricket globally and we we helped with some of the data for that we lent what we found to them the fact that that's even needed is is you know it's a shame isn't it you know we're looking we're talking about red cards in cricket and the fact that that's required now tells us that the behavior is deteriorating the mcc aren't going to bring that in for no reason and that's they brought that in globally so that's a global issue um and, you know, it, it did amaze me up until that point that the umpires, until red cards were brought in, you could pretty much do what you wanted on the field of play. You could walk up to yeah. the opposition and hit them over there with a cricket bat and, and they can't do anything they, during the game afterwards. Yeah, the sanctions can be imply, applied and all that sort of stuff. But during the game, they couldn't send you from the field of play. Um, but the fact that we get into the point and we were at the point where that was required mm. shows that there were incidents of behavior that the mcc were aware of yeah. that required that you know that that red card to be introduced which and an deterioration in conduct i would imagine yeah it's it you know it's all interlinked isn't it so you know obviously that's a that's an issue it's a concern and the mcc have had to act which you know, when we're talking about cricket and we're talking about rugby union and we're talking about how we think people behave in those sports and the fact that we need to do that shows that it's not just an issue that football's grappling with. Yeah. That is something I wanted to to ask about as well, is the historical data. Does it show an uptrend in football specifically, but again, more recently? Because you mentioned the 2008 Respect campaign, which was kind of a top-down initiative. It started at the, the very top of the FA and was launched nationally. It may have had a short-term bump on improving things, but long-term, it seemed to be ineffectual. Fast forward to 2017, when there was a national referee strike of which 2,000 referees were, were said to have participated, which was a very grassroots movement uh, of very disenfranchised uh, individuals, uh, clearly... They'd seen the uh, respect campaign not work for them. Uh, they were part of a system that, that also didn't work for them. So they decided to take grassroots strike action. That was three years ago. We've alluded to on this podcast uh, more recently since the COVID lockdowns have been lifted. Uh, just a massive what seems to be a spike in poor behavior 
uh, referee abuse and just general like like has just been mentioned poor conduct by a, a lot of people. Is that something that's reflected in the in the report? Does the data kind of back that up? Yeah, I, I think what we found is that, that generally and across sports that um, match officials feel like you know the situation has deteriorated basically, um, and, and I'm not just talking about football. I'm talking about across sports and. Obviously, we talked about the red card in cricket as an example. Um, it, it is a problem, yeah, and it's a problem across sports. And sports, that each sport has its different nuances and, and different issues, but there are trends that cross across those sports and across different countries as well, which we, we talk about in the book. And abuse is one of those. Um, you know, issues with retention is another, and that's a knock-on effect of abuse and some of the other issues as well um support networks whether that's formal or informal um a lack of support means people feel disenfranchised they get lost within the system they're much more likely to drop out um issues with non-reporting of incidents that that goes across sports as well uh, where people might be subjected to verbal or physical abuse and aren't reporting it and reasons for that vary some of it's again issues or, or a lack of um a lack of sort of su a perceived support from the disciplinary processes um a lack of communication if they do report it previously that what's happening i don't you know don't know what's happened with that and then um so why do it again because i don't know what the outcome was and actually i've just officiated that person three weeks later so obviously they're still playing um Issues around uh, mentoring that, that people want mentors, but but there aren't enough of them, uh, and maybe that the structure's not there, and and so there's quite a lot of match officials that don't have a mentor, and that's fine for some, and they'll find their own way, but others that need that support, and if it's not there, that's another reason why they might discontinue. All these things cross these different sports, and also into other countries as well. Um, and we sort of, we was finding these trends, which, you know, the more they occur and the more prevalent they are within the data, the less of a coincidence it is. Mm. And, you know, we were finding it in football, we were finding it in rugby, we were finding it in cricket. And then we started looking in the Netherlands and France in football as well. And we were seeing these same trends emerge. And, and so what what that tells us is obviously it's a wider issue. It's a societal problem as well. Um, some of this is not just, you know, abuse is not just resigned to certain sports. Um, but also that if it occurs in different sports and in different countries, then yes, that's a problem. But also if if things have worked and they've tackled certain things in different countries and different sports, then can we learn from it? What's worked and what hasn't worked? Um, can we take that and can we change it and implement it in these other sports? Um, and that gives me hope that that things can and are able to improve, but it takes the will as well. And and, and you mentioned the respect program, a top down initiative like that. Whenever you do it, in in whatever setting, has to really hit the ground running, and it has to deliver what's promised. And the, the, one of the issues with the respect program, certainly that came through the data, was that referees perceived that they didn't get what they thought they were going to get from that program. Now, that's not everyone. And, and we had 
responses and respondents that said, actually, I think it's made a difference, particularly in youth football, um, that, that, you know, the barriers and the things that have been introduced at that level have, have had a real impact. Um, and, and that's great. And, and that's good. Um, but we've got other people saying, actually, I thought it could have done more and what what's happening with it now um, and things like that. And so the problem is with a, with a, a sort of top-down diktat like that, in whatever setting it happens, if the workforce starts to become disenfranchised, then it's a real issue trying to get them back because then once you switch off from it and you think it's not working, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because, you know, you're not going to buy into it and then and then it just becomes a, a sort of wider issue. Um, other sports have tried things in other countries as well. We, we talk about that in the last chapter of the book and, you know, some really good examples from Australia, uh, hockey in Australia, um, what's happening in the Netherlands in football. Um, although what I would say in the Netherlands is that that the catalyst for a lot of stuff that happened there was the death of a of an assistant referee a few years ago. And that is absolutely what we want to avoid in any other sport, in any other setting. We don't want it to get to that point where something that tragic affects national policy. We want to do it before it gets to that point. That that's really, you know, I can't emphasize that enough. We, we you know, we want things to change so that doesn't happen. Interestingly, why why you seeing me and Nathan that smile? Yeah. We had uh, a Dutch referee on here who's a long-term friend of mine, Jere Hoppers, who's been a referee in Netherlands for ages. He runs the biggest youth tournaments in mm-hmm. Holland over Easter. That is the biggest youth tournament in Europe at Easter, and, and he, he's been running that for a long time. That's where I first met Anthony about 15 years ago. Um, and he said exactly that, Tom. He said, you know, they brought in ID cards. You know, when they go for the game, they look at them. He said, it's a really easy process. And and that's exactly what we said, and we've been saying it quite vocally for a while as a charity, that, you know, there's been enough occasions where there's been really serious attacks on referees caught on video where they just haven't been dealt with properly. And they haven't been used as a way of saying, do you know what, let's let's do it. And for at least two years as a charity, we particularly avoided saying that. Because we, we just thought it might have been unfair, a wrong angle to come at. But as we've gone on now to four years, we discuss it openly. We say, look, we truly believe that the FA and other bodies are not going to do anything until someone dies. And when, when, when that does happen, hopefully it won't. We will show the FA all the different occasions where there's been real serious attacks when they just didn't do enough. We've had this one with Satyam Toki now, where even the FA themselves have told us that really, really disillusioned with their own processes of why a ban for 10 years has been reduced to five. And that's people high end in the FA are saying, we're just not happy with that. That that shouldn't happen. So we the signs are there from the FA in fairness. We talked to... Um, Tim Foster, who's the director of Grassroots, who's been really, you said something, Tom. You said hope. You said hope, and I I wrote it down on my pads. We're hopeful, too, that the FA are going to do something really robust before we get anywhere near someone dying. So I I I wrote that down particularly because I I thought that was quite inspiring you saying about the hope. One one of the things I wrote down, trying to put a slighter, funny sort of twist on the subjects, is I've just wrote down things, what you've said about different levels and 
we talked on a previous blog where Anthony was saying when he was refereeing down south, he got a very different response to what he did in Liverpool. And when he was in Wales, he got different different response. And we talked about it. And I, I wrote down four things that I believe I I've said I said as a referee that I believed would not in a million years cause a reaction, but it bloody did. It caused a reaction from a player that I had to then really have to deal with it in a, in, in a manner. I remember saying to one bloke who had red hair, Oi, Ginge, come here. Come here, Ginge. He absolutely lost his mind. Lost his mind. And I had to send him off because he was coming at me and players had to hold him back. He was about 18. It was a, it was a sort of under-18s game. He absolutely, and I really learned about that. I've called a lad handsome because in, his, in the West Country where I live, everyone says, oh, wait, me handsome? It's like a something I picked up. And I said to this lad, hey, handsome, come here. Well, he was ugly as sin. He had a really <laughs> bent old, bit of a twisted face. He thought I was taking a piss. He absolutely lost his shit. I remember saying to another lad, soft lad in Liverpool. Oi, soft lad. He absolutely lost his mind. And mate, I'm not your mate. I said, hey, mate, come here. These are all general things I would use as an individual. And all those things, I caused the problem by what I said to someone I was trying to have the opposite intention. What do yeah. you think about that, Tom? Yeah, I think, I mean, regional dialect definitely has a, you know, there's colloquialism, isn't there, that happens around the country. I, I'm from Cornwall originally. Um, so, you know, so when you talk about meantum and stuff like that, that's that happens. That's, that's, that's the language you use and, and things like that. And I used to play in um, uh, the... Devon Junior and Minor League when I was a kid. So uh, obviously the majority of the teams would come from Plymouth and around there. If you were a Cornish team playing a team from Devon, every week it was just a battle, you know, and it was, and, and so the, the regional differences are, are massive, you know, and you, I think language is a, a really important thing when you're a, a match official, definitely. And I think those incidents you've, highlighted martin are really good examples of that that how you speak to people you've got to be really aware of it because you know where, wherever you are in the country or wherever even where one of those players might come from you might not even know that you know that they they might be a, a liverpudlian and they're playing in the southeast and so if you say soft lad to them now if you said that to someone in the southeast they wouldn't care, you know, it'd be fine. But you say that to someone from Liverpool has a certain connotation, doesn't it? So, yeah. and all of a sudden it means something. And and so it being aware of that language and how you deal with people and, and those, well, what we sort of term as soft skills, I, de- I guess, yeah. Yeah. Really, it's really important. And, and, it, and the reaction that it can get and then how you deal with that reaction afterwards. So like you said, you know, the reaction you got and you had to send you know, the ginger guy off because of how he reacted and how he then reacted towards you aggressively. Then you're backed into a corner and you haven't got a, you haven't got a choice. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we learn, you know, we're learning all the time about people's behaviour and how they act and interact in those situations. And and some people pick up on those things really quickly when they come into officiating and whatever sport we're talking about in terms of those soft skills. And, and it might be down to the job that they do outside of that. So some jobs lend themselves to dealing with people and how you act and react with people. Others don't, you know, and they might have to learn those skills very, very quickly as they come into officiating. So yeah, language has a, has a massive impact on how people, people behave. 
Yeah. I, I was just listening really sort of carefully to what you were saying before about the cultures and things and it must become abundantly abundantly clear to me listening to you talk and answer all the questions that you have is that you know you've gone across continents you've gone across um europe and 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 into america in particular um and then looked at so many different things but i, I want to kind of bring something that we've talked about a lot on here over a number of episodes and that's um, obviously there was a, a referendum in this country four years ago uh, on uh, European Union membership, um, and, and I'll, I'll reference it again uh, in a piece from Sanjay Bandari, the chair of uh, Kick It Out, uh, earlier this year. He was saying that really the problems that we've seen in football with racism, sexism, and homophobia are all because, as a result of that of that outcome in that um, referendum, a lot of people seem to have been emboldened to uh, opinions that are quite frankly unacceptable. And, and I have, I've added my own opinion on this. I wrote a blog about it to do with, with, with racism in particular, but, but also about sort of disability and, and all sorts of other different aspects. Um, and and I, I, I wholeheartedly support that. Um, but I just wondered if, you know, through the piece, because obviously you've looked at it in areas where there wasn't a referendum or it didn't happen, um, and, and they are, not, I'm not going to say happy members of, of, of a union or whatever that might be, but it certainly seems to me that you've you've obviously got a UK and then a, a continental and, and, and beyond viewpoint. Has that really sort of made a difference do you think because obviously the, the research has conducted over the past few years as well when this has all been happening i actually never really considered that to be perfectly honest um it's an interesting point i think yeah the, you know obviously the referendum and the outcome of the referendum and the ongoing issues with brexit have have highlighted divisions in society i think that that's yeah. pretty clear um and not just leave and remain, but, but you know, a, a sort of aside from that, potentially it, it sort of looked at almost highlighted other societal issues that, that maybe we were aware of, but maybe weren't quite so prevalent or we, you know, weren't so publicly um, covered perhaps. Yeah. I think certainly with, um, when we look at the Netherlands is a good example. I mean, actually they, I think one of the reasons that um, it was never going to be easy to leave the European Union after we voted, you know, the EU were never going to make it really easy for the UK to leave. And, and the reason for that is because other countries, one of the reasons, other countries um, might follow suit. Now they might, they might think the same. Now the Netherlands is actually not that dissimilar in terms of the split between who wants to stay and who wants to leave. So, um, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the negotiating has gone on and is still going on and we're leaving in, you know, less than two months, you know, it's not long. Um, because other countries are not that dissimilar to us, you know, and I think we maybe look at it like, you know, we, the UK is completely separate and different from all these other countries. There are factions in, in lots of different countries across Europe to, yeah. to different extents, but the Netherlands has got quite an avid population that don't want to be in the European Union. And they've had votes on it and they've made, you know, various things over the years. But um, 
I've ne- I never sort of really considered whether that had an impact on the abuse of, of match officials or, or any of that sort of stuff that we I, mean, I, I just think to give you a bit of context, I mean, I've, I've talked about my personal refereeing career in terms of the fact that, you know, last season um, was the first time I'd, I'd ever had a racist incident on, on a football pitch that I had to, had to deal with. Um, and then this season... I've, I've dismissed two players already this season for using homophobic language, which is something I can't ever remember having done. Um, and, and these things uh, just seem to be, I think, uh, my, my opinion is certainly one of the way people conduct themselves on a football pitch is reflective of society as a whole. And, and I do feel that, you know, there has certainly been a rise to those things. And I think that that's something that, you know, obviously you talked about how, how secure do referees feel. Well, how do referees who are of uh, maybe a BAME background feel? Do they feel more vulnerable now on a pitch, you know? But also how, how, how does maybe a transgender referee or a, or a homosexual referee feel, you know? And I think that these are they're all big, big concerns that... How secure do you feel on a football pitch now that some of these voices are getting more and more of a, a kind of a, a fair hearing, which they shouldn't be because they're, they're ignorant views? I think what, one point you made there about, you know, sport, there's research around it in that sport is a microcosm of society. Effectively, it reflects what happens in the wider world. So you do see in sport behaviour that that is reflective of what what is happening in society and that is you know and and the examples you've used identify from your experience that that is the case Mm. um and there's research around that you know academic research has been published a number of years ago looking at you know sport reflecting society and the behavior of people in sport and how they act in in a sporting setting and outside of that setting on the on the street and things like that and i think we bring it almost back round to when we're talking about players attacking referees or match officials and things like that and the punishments that might be given if you did that on the street the punishment would be much more severe if you do it in sport it's like this code that things are a bit different and um it's almost you know, seen as acceptable. It's it's yeah. not. You know, in the, in France, for example, referees are seen as the same as police officers, doctors, yeah. nurses, those sorts of people. If you did that to them, you are treated in the same way. And I helped the referees uh, association um, with some underpinning um, research that they submitted for the judicial review a few months ago. They just wrote to me and asked me if. What they could use some of the stuff and I said yes you know because and it's all about trying to increase the sentencing guidelines make them more harsh for people that do that on a on a football pitch or a, or a sporting in a sporting setting um and it happens in other countries like I said France is a good example of that mm-hmm. um so if we bring it back round yeah you know why are we treating those people differently in sport if they behave in that way if you did it in the street and you walked up to someone and punched them, you know the, the likelihood is you're 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 going to get prosecuted. So I, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the same. Yeah, I mean I totally agree because I think at the end of the day, in society when this has happened, the police are policing it. When it's happening in on a football pitch, we are not the police. We don't have the same powers. Powers. 
we don't have the same level of support. You know, I can't, I can't sort of halfway through a game, I can't ring up and, and, and get a, a riot van to come and help me, you know? So I think it's, um, I think it is really important. And I know that Martin's sort of smiling there and it's because it's something that's really, really close to his heart. And he's really, really passionate about, which is trying to treat the officials the same and, and have the sentencing council view people in the same way that, uh, that they do police officers and ambulance and fire. And yeah. So we, we, we wrote uh, to David Ellery um, four years ago. We asked for it to be framed as a vulnerable role. Exactly what you said. So did you say Tom in France, it's actually, it, it is that way in France. Yeah. You know, brilliant. Cause I could look at some of that maybe information we could send that in because David Ellery then got back to us two years later via a journalist to say that he had approached uh, the relevant people to look at having that. And then last week, when I talked to Tim Foster, who, who's been brilliant, as I mentioned earlier, he said he is going to follow that up. So if there's any research you you could get to us that we could send that in, and I might do an intro to make it happen. That'd be brilliant because we feel the sentencing council might not be the quickest way to go about it. Reason being that law is going to be so hard to change. But as mm. getting something designated as a vulnerable role will, will be relatively quicker. Also, the FA recognised that. That's really easy to do, to recognise it as a vulnerable role. And one of the things we're finding is it doesn't matter if, you, if, if the sentence is life. It doesn't matter if the sentence is a death sentence. You've got to get them to court in the first place. And what we're finding is there isn't an appetite to do that. The Satyam Toki case... Clear video, smacked three times, cut eye, a caution. The police officer didn't even give it to the CPS to get anywhere near getting a sentence that would not be viewed to be robust enough. So we're really in the process of what we feel are getting proper protection for mass officials at all levels. The sentence council is probably the longest possible way you can mm -hmm. go to get fundamental change. Whereas if we go to our national governor body and ask them to help it get framed as a vulnerable role, that will not take anywhere near as long as it would to get a Santa Council. That's where we sit with that. Although we do praise it, the RA and for going that route because it is another option that I think is admirable. And it's just an interesting take on that, Tom. That you know, I'll be really interested to see that data that if it helps us get all referees designated as a vulnerable role, the same as paramedics, even porters, even licensees of pubs have got more protection than than, than a referee. Same yeah, I, I think that, like I said, in, in France, they've, you know, they've done that. And, and I think that's, you know, uh, it's a deterrent, isn't it? That's, mm. you know, at the end of the day, if, if you're trying to reduce the prevalence of verbal, physical attacks, wh whatever that is, if you put more deterrence in there, whether that's, whether that's related to sentencing, whether that's related to police, whether that's related to charges, whether it's related to finance, so you hit people harder where, you know, they have to pay more money if it's a caution related to that or sending off related to that. Whatever, however it's done, um, I think there's a number of ways you could go that, that deters people from doing it. And you're never going to stop everyone. You know, it's, it, we, we have to acknowledge that because in the heat of the moment, someone will you know, their behaviour will be unacceptable and something might happen. But if you can decrease the prevalence and, and reduce the number of times it happens, that will be, that those incidents will be fewer and further between. So um, I think it's it's about putting barriers in the way. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely 100% agree. 
Well, Sam, we've been on here just over an hour. I absolutely could talk a lot more on this. And I think this could be something we revisit. Um, we'll definitely seek some guidance of you for the statistical and research stuff you've got that we could use to evidence our intentions as a charity to get more protection for referees. So that's brilliant that that's come out in this conversation. And I just think letting people listen to the the, 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 the independent data and research you're creating, I think is a game changer for match officials of all sports around the world. So personally, I want to thank you for you and all the work you do at Portsmouth University. And I think this could be a good opportunity to big up your book, tell us where we can get it from, because we're going to buy it. We're going to give it, give one away. So fire away on your book, mate. Yeah, so it's available from, I think it's available from lo loads of places actually now. It, it was just the publisher, which is Routledge. Um, I think it's on, I think it's in Waterstones and stuff like that now as well. So um, but if you go to Routledge, which is the publisher, I think there's they're even doing a Black Friday type thing at the moment. So I think and for an academic book, it's actually not that expensive. It's about 35, 36 quid, I think, at the moment, which for an academic book is, is pretty good, to be honest. Um, usually they're a lot more than that. Um, uh, so yeah, routledge.com and then just type in the book title, um, which is Referees, Match Officials and Abuse, um, Research and Implications for Policy. Um, and it should come up. We'll pop, I'll pop a direct link into the description of this video. Uh, so if anyone wants to just have a little check of the, the comments and the, the description and that, there'll be a link directly to get to uh, to that book there as well. Thanks, Anne. And we'll do a competition for this. So, so Tom, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely much, brilliant. Great stuff. Really helpful for me personally, if I'm honest. And, um, and let's keep in touch. And thank you again for all your hard work and diligence. No worries. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Sweet. So from myself, Martin and Nathan... Uh, and Dr. Tom Webb, thanks very much to all our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Having trouble tracking who can play and who can't? Download Down to Play before your next match. The first app to purely focus on player availability. Get Down to Play for free in the App Store and Google Play. This week's Selk podcast was brought to you by Down to Play, the simple app for next game availability.